1: Oh, hello, it's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gathered around the table this Thursday, we've got Danielle Riendo. Hi. Riendo. Got it. Need to, need to hit that pronunciation a little harder. Yeah, that's it's fine.
2: They're both right.
1: Yeah, but one one's just a little too French. <laughs> uh, and we also have Natalie Watson. Hi, hi. Uh, so, before we dive into today's topic, uh, some caution warnings you should probably bear in mind. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, drug abuse, particularly uh, opioid abuse and uh, overdoses. So, be warned, it's a super upbeat episode of Waypoints <laughs> uh, this, this week, yeah. uh, but we're going to be dealing with some uh, pretty heavy stuff, so... Bear bear that in mind uh before we before we continue along. Uh we are going to open with a discussion of Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, which Natalie, this was your waypoint for the week. Uh this was. why don't you tell us a little bit about it?
3: Uh yeah, my uh waypoint for this week was Roma. I originally watched it a couple weeks ago. I got the chance to see it in 70 millimeter at the Alamo in Brooklyn. Nice. Um, which means a lot to a lot of people, and I means nothing to me. <laughs> um, I am not like a film.
2: <laughs> Sorry, Rob. Rob just Rob threw his-, his headphones.
3: It was a it was a vicious throw. Um, no, I I appreciate. I I rewatched it. Here's what I'll say. I rewatched it last night on Netflix on my computer, and I can tell the difference. Yes. Uh, I'm glad the first time I watched it was in theaters, uh, at the very least, if not, um, you know, in, in, with that incredible mix and, and seeing it in a, on a projector and everything. So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was Roma.
1: Um, did you have any history with Quaron films? Like, are you, are you a fan of the director or, uh, like, I mean, Children of Men certainly is probably one of my favorite, like, dystopian mm-hmm. sci-fi films. But it turns out I've been a fan of Cuaron since I was a little kid. Um, mm-hmm. He made a movie that has some problematic elements uh, at mm-hmm. this point. But he made um, A Little Princess,
0: uh, Danielle, which
1: I think you and I are of a generation to remember that as yes. as a kid's movie. and. It's still a damn good kids movie. A little yeah. more than a little orientalizing, uh but still kind of a beautiful uh fable of like turn of the century New York. Yes,
2: yeah. agreed.
3: Um I am a fan of um Alfonso uh his greatest work uh and my first introduction to him was Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Um
1: genuinely that genuinely that is the best great. movie. Yeah. It's the
3: best one out of all of them. I I don't know why it's just it. It, it just is um, cinematography. The cinematography is incredible. Just yeah, the way that it's just it's so good. But this is not that podcast. um I recently I haven't seen many of his movies, uh, many of his other films, um, except I did see Gravity uh, recently, relatively recently. So that was that was the other one. Um, I wanted to see itu mama también, pero but oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, good good, but I uh, haven't seen it yet. But my mom, <laughs> me mama, suggested it to me. So uh, yeah, that's kind she of she did my, as well. Good, yeah, yeah, totally. So that's my experience with with him. Um, I don't know if Danielle, you have more.
2: I uh once upon a time young baby Danielle film student uh, was told that she should purchase the DVD of ETo Mama and I did, and it was both really great and really hot, <laughs> and that's uh, <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful coming of age story mm-hmm. to young men uh, who are best best of friends, uh, and they uh you know they meet a, a hot lady on a beach. Uh, and there's a lot of a lot going on there's a lot there as well uh in terms of like class stratification in mexico and in terms of um slice of life kind of stuff and and the things that people do and the, the things that young people do it's obviously very mm-hmm. very very different uh from roma but in terms of like kind of Creating the fresco, which uh, Rob in the in the sort of notes, uh, and I know we'll go into this, but uh, there there's this sort of beautiful thread uh, from Guillermo del Toro about how this movie is a fresco, and it literally mm-hmm. it's moving. The it's it's always sort of gently moving in these wide, beautiful, long shots, showing the sort of patchwork tapestry of life in this very specific place and time, and sort of uh, this milieu to mm-hmm. use a. You put a little riendo spin
1: onto it, right? Uh, first of all, like uh, actually, the credit the the notes for this episode uh, were were Natalie's, uh, at, le- at least as far as this section goes, because uh, she was super sh- super hyped to talk about this. But if you haven't followed what Roma is, to to give you a sketch, like if mm-hmm. your when you think of Quarone, if your last exposures uh, to Quarone were like Gravity and Children of Men. Um, this recognizably has some stylistic elements and flourishes of his, like it is recognizably one of his films, but this is at once most, one of his most uh, like personal works, I would say. Mm -hmm. Certainly it's, there's, there's autobiographical elements, uh, but it's also the most, I would say grounded in an actual place and time and real world events. It's, it's a domestic drama, shot like and produced like an historical epic. Uh, mm-hmm. And it follows uh, sort of the, uh, it, it follows the story of basically a domestic servant in late 1960s, early 1970s uh, Mexico mm-hmm. uh, named Cleo. And she is a servant of a fairly high status uh, Mexican family. Of- yeah,
3: they're at least like upper middle class.
1: Yeah, like professional, like uh, like one is a doctor, and one is a scientist. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, it's a it's a husband it's a husband and wife. Uh, the doctor, uh, and a bio, uh, I think a biochemist, yeah. um, mm-hmm. is uh is, is his wife, and he the as the movie opens, we we sort of begin with the daily routine of uh, of of Cleo.
3: Cleo de Garia. just right, like the but- most beautiful name, <laughs> but yeah, she's referred to as Cleo.
1: Yeah, but it's it's much more it, it's if you're if you're thinking like some sort of upstairs downstairs like British class drama, this really isn't that. This is uh much more of a very personal story backdropped against massive social upheaval and the places those intersect.
3: Mm-hmm. It's just so brilliantly interwoven, like everything that's happening. And yeah, that uh, Guillermo del Toro thread that you were talking about, Danielle, I, s- I like happened upon that thread right after I'd seen the movie, like minutes after I'd oh, seen the wow. movie. And it has like to- that that specific tweet of, you know, that this is a mural, that this is not a portrait. It is like... uh you know, showing showing uh, a, a little scrolling sort of landscape yeah. has like stuck so, just stuck in my head. Um, and I think that's like one of its greatest achievements. I like, maybe I'll change my tune in like a couple years when I'm wiser and <laughs> who knows, but I like felt like this was just a masterpiece um, in in every single regard. And I wanted to highlight the uh, lead actress Yalitza Aparicio. Um, she is of uh, Mixtec and descent, and she was born in Oaxaca. She, this is her. <clears throat> she plays uh, Cleo, who is the um, you know housekeeper slash nanny of the family, and she is based on Liboria Rodriguez, which is um, Alfonso's childhood nanny. So this is autobiographical. It's about him growing up in Mexico City. I think it's about specifically him growing up in this neighborhood, um, which is called Roma. The, that's why the film is called Roma, because the neighborhood is called Roma. And um, <clears throat> she, this is her first acting role. She initially, uh, she had just graduated from school with a teaching degree, and her sister was the one who tried out for the role, but um, her sister was pregnant at the time and couldn't. And so her sister was just like, you should go. And she was like, well, I have some time like before you know i get my exams back for whatever so i guess i'll try out and then she got the job and she was like okay well i guess i have time right now to do this thing so i'll do it um and and she if you haven't heard has been nominated for uh best actress um by uh the academy um this marks the first time an indigenous woman has been nominated for best actress and the first time in 14 years that uh uh uh, a Latina has been nominated for Best Actress, um, which is, is 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 it's significant. I mean, it is, it is, it means so much to see an indigenous woman like in this space and like c- command, like having commanded it, like with such. Grace and finesse, and and she's just she like I like when I think of her, I get like emotional. Um, so uh, I just have a lot of like pride and joy um, for that story. <clears throat> well,
1: and, and I think it's it's not just you know that she was cast in this role, but really this is a story that touches on class divides in Mexico, and not just mm-hmm. between rich and poor, but also uh, like ethnic background. Uh, mm-hmm. in Mexico and the way that often does tie to socio uh, socioeconomic status, or mm-hmm. also the fact that there are entire regions of Mexico that are kind of relegated to second-class status, as far as the government's interest on them, their region, their places, the government serves and there's places the, the government uh, sort of preys upon in, mm-hmm. in Mexico. And I think it like it is, she, she's becomes a fascinating figure in this film Because she stands at the center of, she she stands at at so many sort of, in in so many liminal spaces within Mm -hmm. uh, Mexican society at this moment. And all the sort of tumults that's surrounding them uh, begins to affect her even as her own personal life uh, also begins to spiral a little bit out of control. Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, she, I, 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 I found a New York Times article, um, that, uh, you know, uh, interviewed, uh, Yalitza, and, um, also, uh, there's this, uh, a specific quote about, you know, the development of the movie in which, uh, the actors were not given a script or a story arc, um, and, uh, uh, the woman who plays adela which is uh the sort of chef of the household um uh Nani- uh sorry nancy garcia garcia she's actually like uh uh Yalitza's best friend in real life <laughs> um but but um when when they were doing development and you know like rehearsing and stuff like that um guaron would just have them like together and like just like kind of talking like the span like platicando like just like chatting and but they weren't like chatting as you know as like their their selves from teaching like as their real selves they were like fully in character and just like created this whole story out of like the setting that that um Guaron like provided. And it's just, it's so incredible to me. Like the 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 nuance of the dialogue between them is is was one of the great it like sounded like like I don't it just sounded so real. It just sounded like like I was there. Like I was like in Guatemala and like just like in the house and like just like a fly on the wall. And it sounded like you know you know even like the the walking through the streets and you hear like all this all the vendors and it's all like layered on top of each other and like everything just like feels like so real and like grounded and and like it's not it's not nostalgia it's like something it's like just like familiar and like homey feel I don't know it's it's difficult
2: I think the uh so so I, I watched this very much. Um, Like yesterday, I gave a cinematography lecture uh, yeah. to my students in my film and TV class. And then I and I watched this last night. Like I cuddled up in bed. I know I, know I apologize. I did not see it in theaters. Cuddled, <laughs> but it was also a really good experience. Like curled up in bed. And it does feel like, okay, it's a domestic drama. This is like a very, very, in many ways, it, it feels like a very big movie because it, it literally used, half of this movie, maybe even more than half of this movie is in wide shots. Like yeah, really, 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 really pulled out and, and really giving you such a sense of all of this movement and all of this texture and all of this sort of uh, just motion of life and, and mm-hmm. sort of um, you know different people kind of coming and going. Uh, but I, I curled up and watched it and was just so completely drawn into the way it does use like negative space and the way it does have like Big, beautiful skies in a lot of in a lot of places. and then also, like busy cities and and mm-hmm. busy everything. Like every single frame in this movie, ok, maybe not every single frame. So many frames in this movie are so busy mm-hmm. and big and beautiful and yet are still so completely intimate and personal and speak so directly to this character's life. And that, to me, is like beyond an achievement. Like to mm-hmm. to do this with wide shots, to do what they have done with wide shots here mm-hmm. is like, holy shit. You know, like, create this performance without using a lot of close-ups. It's like, wow, that is holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> like that is really, truly mind-blowing to me, like, how that was done.
1: Well, and I think like, the uh, Del Toro thread that we referenced earlier yeah. mentions that, and I did not know this watching the film, I found out when I read that thread afterwards, mm-hmm. that they built a, basically a six-square block set of <laughs> uh, this version of Mexico City built off quron's. Memories and recollections uh, of the place, because mm-hmm. wow. you know a lot of it is gone. A lot of it would have been uh, hard mm-hmm. to hard to recreate. But I would have bet you my bottom dollar that was shot on location. Yeah, like, I would. Right. Have, like totally. it's huge. Like it looks it like is Mexico
3: th- City. <laughs> like, yeah, the, the way that like that the the like the home has like that like front like front gate or whatever, and everything like is in the back. Like that is that is just. That's how it is, like you know what I mean, and like it just it it felt the fact that it was all built in a back lot is just unbelievable to me. Yeah.
1: Um. Well, and so there's the fact it was it's a it's a constructed set, uh, and then there's the fact that it is just an incredibly gorgeous black and white film, um, yes. and you do not see many of those anymore. I was reading a little bit about, uh. So it definitely sounds like at this point, Quarren's at that phase and in, in his career where where he in his career where he can basically get whatever he wants. <laughs> uh and what he got, it sounds like, is basically a by-hand um coloring of these black and white frames off the 65 millimeter digital camera uh, and so there's a there's a good piece at IndieWire talking about how does it, the the movie look this good because it's not like you can just flip the camera to like black and white mode and get something you know you can't just like desaturate the color uh yeah. and and get this effect so what uh Quaron and Technicolor did apparently was they used post-process effects to basically shade every frame of this film. I'm not clear to what degree some of that was algorithmic mm-hmm. where you just feed the film through and that process would be applied versus mm-hmm. how much was basically done by hand. But the result is a film that look like it's strange. It is it is a gorgeous film, but it is so um what's the way to put this?
3: Like texture?
1: I don't know. No, it's uh, the way I put it is I forget that I'm watching film. It's the strangest (laughs) thing. Like the early shots where she's serving the family their uh, midday meal Mm -hmm. and she goes back out to the kitchen where the servants are eating. They're sitting by the window. The window's Mm -hmm. open. The light's filtering down through it. You feel like you're there. And, like, yeah. just from the way the color, just from the color, the way the motes of dust in the air are moving around the yes. curtains, you yes. can feel the air. Like, you know, you you know that space. You know, you know everything about that moment. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't feel like sometimes you see a film, particularly a digital film, and you're like incredibly aware of the medium. Mm-hmm. You're incredibly aware of like, you know, a little bit of digital grain there, a little bit of noise here and there. Everything here just feels like you're seeing it. And in in his remarks, like Quaron says that he was basically trying to make a film that looks like the human eye perceives things. Mm-hmm. Um, which yeah, you know, mission accomplished. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Good on <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, though, though, when she's like, uh, you know, these aren't like I d- I don't think we should go into like spoiler territory. Maybe because since this isn't. Uh, be good and rewatch it like i'm sure people are getting the suggestion to go or like gonna get the bug to go see it so i don't want to get too into spoiler territory but um yeah when she's like walking when when walking through the bedrooms and the and the dust is just like floating in the air like little like it feels so natural and like tangible um in a way that's not like 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 what's the word i'm looking for like realistic in mm-hmm. the digital sense if that makes sense uh uh so and 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 something that i think is just remarkable about this film is how it feels like every moment like has like everyone is always doing something in every moment i think of um of uh if you don't want to know anything about the film going into it uh skip to like a minute ahead but when um when Cleo and and Adela are sitting in the restaurant um and Fermin and Ramon like come up behind them and Fermin is just yeah they're yeah their boyfriends are, yeah um and Fermin is just like they offer them food and Fermin and Ramon are like no we're fine but Fermin just like has this like stare at at uh, Cleo that he's like it's just like unrelenting like it's just not breaking and it's like the most like unsettling intense thing but it's not obvious because he's like far in the background he's like at least like one two three maybe four like layers pushed back in terms of like what's uh in the each setting um and and he's like kind of hazy or whatever but he's just like looking at at uh at Cleo and like not breaking. And it is just like, like it just, you, you, you wouldn't really notice it, but it just, it feels like, and, and that's like everywhere. It's like, it just feels so wholly encompassed. Like everything feels, and, and what's incredible to me is that so much of that is like, could be just natural. Like so much of that might not have been directed um it, especially when considering like Cleonadella's della's dialogue or whatever like them you know their back and forth um them being you know uh in their quarter in their sort of like maids quarters together like just like kind of chit, like chatting and like doing their little str- like doing the stretches and stuff and like you know talking like referencing the tamales that they ate earlier the tortas like just like that is it's just oh it's so good it's just mwah, I love it it's so good <laughs> I'm just totally infatuated. Well,
1: it also does become a movie about gender and work as well. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Because another theme of this movie is life goes on, but particularly work goes on. Work is unending for these women. And no matter what is happening, Cleo has to continue doing her job as a uh, domestic servant. Yeah. And no matter it,
3: how close she is to the family and – how much you know? Pepe is like stay with me, like be with me, like sh- she will get asked to like go, you know, fetch something, or you know, like why is the house what you know? She's there. She's always like put pulled in and pushed out, and pulled in and pushed out. Um,
2: Liminal social space, as well as you know. Physical, mm-hmm. physical spaces, and also you know, sort of social status as well. Yeah, I, that was really something I noticed early on uh, when she is sort of clearing, you know, the table, and everybody's watching TV and having having a, a laugh. And she kind of goes and you know is, is able to kind of cuddle and like be be part of the family in some ways for a second. And then it's like, oh, can you go get the doctor some tea? We got to go make some chamomile. And it's like, oh, I back to work now. She like she keeps. Yeah, being almost invited in and uh, welcomed in, and then oh no no no, you're 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 still the help. You know that kind of attitude it still exists towards her. No matter, no matter how much they the family does love her, mm-hmm. she is still and how much she loves them. And like, she loves she, them. To, she yes. does
3: every like every action is just done with with the care and love that like is 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 developed like through these types of uh, that can be developed through these types of relationships in which you know she she wakes up the children with like uh, a mestec like uh lullaby or, or she uh puts them to sleep with a little mistek lullaby and in the morning she like wakes them up with like a little mistek song and and it's just it's like it, it's just such a like you feel such a the love that she like has for the children and even like the the respect that she has for um uh uh Senora Sofia, which is it's intense. It's really it this whole movie is so in like intense.
1: But this the other thing it also has such a wonderful sense of humor about yes, this movie. It, does. it is not
3: like intense in the way that like you feel like you're being throttled the whole time but
1: <laughs> there's one of the funniest and best characters in this movie is uh oh gosh who makes it it's the galaxy but is it a is it a ford galaxy
2: oh, oh. yes the ford a, galaxy right? yeah yeah it's
3: uh i think it is i'm pretty sure it is
1: i can't yeah uh
2: this car
1: this Any- the the, the <laughs> Yeah, this is one of those big fuck-off 1960s.
3: Just wide uh, as shit.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just massive. And it is the beloved pet of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. And the car is a symbol of just a shit ton of things. But also, it's just too goddamn big. It is so big. And it <laughs> pops up in so many scenes at the most weird and inappropriate, but it's always a relief when it does. Yeah, like the, the, yeah. the, the, recurring bits around this car are incredible. And the way different characters interact with this car, car yeah. particularly the uh particular, particularly Senora Sophia's changing relationship <laughs> yeah. with
3: the car. <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: It's, it's amazing. And it's, you know, it, it arrives at some of the heaviest moments, but, God, there is a sequence where she... I think, Natalie, you pointed out in your notes and it absolutely killed me. <laughs> She's in traffic and she sees a pretty big gap between two trucks. Like, there's a Which is st-
3: in, in comparison to... I just want to note, like, this is in comparison to a scene from before in which... Uh, 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 Senor... Uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, the doctor. The doctor, yeah. uh, Antonio... Um, where he pulls into the driveway because I think it's it's important. Um, where he pulls into the driveway and there's uh, and he's just he's pulling in and then and then he like taps you know uh, uh, a little thing and then he pulls it out and it's all focused on his hands and his like in his cigarette and him like it's shot like a 50s
1: thriller. Yeah.
3: These are
2: the close-ups in this movie. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> on these details. It's like, so good.
3: And he's just like and he's like trying to avoid the pile of dog shit, but then he can't <laughs> avoid it and has to run over it. And it's just so drawn out, but it, it's like so meticulous. And then and then to compare it to like a few minutes later when Rob, you were going to say. Sorry yeah, to jump in.
1: No, she she sees a pretty big gap between two trucks, and she decides to like try to thread it like luke skywalker taking the x-wing down the trench and things don't go as planned but what is great what is great is also there's this there's the weirdest exchange of looks between the two truck drivers and senora sofia at the wheel it is just the most like well, I guess our lives are all bound up in this moment type recognition <laughs> yeah. of well we we share this we are it's
3: so it's so wild because she like she goes for it and then she has like five seconds of it not working and she's just and she's so funny she she has her hands on the wheel and she has her little finger up and she's like doing a little thing with her finger she's like she's like duh, 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 duh. like just like I don't know just like a li- the tiniest little detail and then she just pull out like just like just through these two chunks and they're like and exactly what you said rob they're like well this is it
2: this is yeah. just us now this is our life now
1: and i mean this is like i don't want to sell it this movie makes some hard turns in terms of oh, what yeah. it's about and what is happening particularly like what is happening in the background of its world uh mm-hmm. like it this movie wrecked me uh mid mm-hmm. midway through Uh, But at the same time, it is just one of the most, heartwarming feels like a, heartwarming sounds like a branded word. Heartwarming sounds like a bullshit Sounds It sounds
3: like Hallmark or some shit. Yeah.
1: And yet I think, you know, there's so much sense of life as it happens in this film, good and bad, that it recognizes complicated realities without reducing them to a caricature, like the fact that you can Mm -hmm. be a domestic servant and in a way a member of the family and those two things in travel between those two statuses and it's very fluid. It doesn't necessarily mean their love is insincere and it doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. mean that you're being completely exploited, but there's all these shadings of nuance and meaning in every interaction. And that can Mm -hmm. be, Warm and reassuring and it can be disappointing and upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is the thing that I just adore about this movie is that for the most part, all these characters and their relationships are given so much respect and sensitivity and humanity, even as their flaws mm-hmm. are recognized. Um, and it is so evocative of people in a time and place. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when they when they go to Veracruz toward the end. Uh, which is where oh. a lot of my family were from. So, uh, you know, a lot of stories in my family about, you know, going down to visit Uncle Junior at, uh, at his place in Veracruz. And mm-hmm. um, watching this movie also made me realize <laughs> – it all, It also reminded me of something my mom always said, which was that when she went on vacation through Mexico with, with uh, her father – And they all piled in to the family station wagon and drove through Mexico. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that he was always a little uptight, uh, always a little jittery on the roads between cities. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was a movie that sort of also reminded me like, oh, shit. like, Yeah, 70s Mexico, there was a lot of upheaval and unrest. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you could have that charming seaside resort and also this awareness that in some ways this can be a country that's fraying at the seams.
3: Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, for every warm like memory there like in this in this movie there's also like just like some of the deepest pain. Um and 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 it's it, like it's not singular. Like I don't know how to how to convey that it is like so layered between so many different things that are happening in Mexico at this time between so many different, you know, themes and motivations and, and uh, and, you know, it's just, it it just feels so monumental um, right. in like the widest sense. Uh, it's yeah, it's just, mwah, I love it. <laughs> it's a great, it is a great, a great film.
1: Uh, We will take a quick break there and up next we're going to talk about uh, opioids, the Sackler family and you Alright, so my waypoint this week is a couple articles that both stem from uh, basically the same court filing from a case that's currently underway here in Massachusetts. Uh, The first is an article by Barry Meyer over at the New York Times, and the second is by uh, Beth Moll at Ars Technica, but they both cover uh, some filings relating to an ongoing lawsuit against several members of the Sackler family and executives. And the company itself of Purdue Pharmaceutical, and it all stems from uh, the company's role in making and marketing OxyContin, and the growing opioid uh, epidemic that's uh, sort of been sweeping America for uh, probably you know the better part of two decades uh, at this yeah. point, and. One of the things that was really astonishing in this article uh, is that in this court filing, uh, the attorney general's office in Massachusetts has a lot of internal company communications uh, from Purdue pharmaceutical. And what is revealed in these communications is the degree to which uh, Purdue pharmaceutical were kind of aware from the beginning Of the dangers OxyContin posed and the role it was playing in creating a growing, uh, a a growing population of opioid addicts Mm -hmm. and the degree to which Purdue not only blew those risks off, but kind of just went full speed ahead with marketing the drug and Basically, doing a lot of things that imply a degree of tacit permission and encouragement of abuse of the drug, of miss of uh, like of unwise prescription of of the drug and targeting
3: specifically, you know, people that were already at risk um to to target them to start using the drug or if they were already.
1: Yeah, it, it, one of the things, and then as the uh, epidemic begins to take off, there's internal communications where you see executives kind of wondering what they should do about it. And the the CEO of, of Purdue at the time, uh, Richard Sackler, who's a member of the family that owns it, their private company, uh, basically saying that it's important that the company get out ahead of this and make sure that everyone knows that addicts are reckless criminals. And uh, they are misusing and abusing uh, their medication, and the implication being that it's not on it's not on anyone else. It's on it's drug addicts' fault uh, if they get addicted and eventually overdose or turn to uh, more traditional opiates. And it's just a it's it's a stunning read. And the other thing that's stunning is the degree to which so much of this happened almost in the open and. With a lot of awareness from both Purdue Pharmaceutical, but also a lot of permission from government agencies.
2: Yeah, that's part of what's so upsetting about this. This is something I've gotten into a lot of fights on Twitter about with uh, uh, people who maybe know a little less about this sort of thing than I do, um, <laughs> about how, you know, in, in most of our world, Most of the evil, most of the truest expressions of evil, most of the really the worst shit tends to have many causes, right? There's a whole lot of conflating factors that allow really terrible things to happen, really awful people with with bad motivations, a lot of bad actors to to do terrible things. And this is one of those rare cases where it's pretty fucking easy to pinpoint what happened here. Uh, It's pretty fucking easy to pinpoint it on the greed and avarice of a very small group of very rich people who are running the show here. Uh, And I think a lot of these documents show just how fucking damning uh, the evidence is for for just how completely, not only reckless, but really, really malicious, I would say malicious, whether they wanted people to literally die or not. These are not good intentions. These are not, I want to help people who are in pain. This is I want to fucking make a shit ton of money. Make a shit ton of money, and I don't care who gets hurt in the process. Um, and yeah, there's a whole lot of looking away. So you, you could certainly say, yes, there's many conflating factors. We live in a shitty capitalistic society where things like medicine and healthcare are goods and services as opposed to, you know, sort of things that are necessary for living and, and sustaining human life. And, mm-hmm. you know, the things that maybe they really actually are or should be. Um, of course, you you could say that, but this is this really is one of those shining things where it's like, oh no, this one is this straight is in there this is evil with a capital e this is terrible um and i it's it's hard for me not to make moral pronouncements about this i will say i had a this is not spoiler warning this is a content alert we already kind of said this but i had a cousin who died of an opioid overdose a couple of years ago um sort of like the next day i had to go for extra narcan training like how to use nails and to sort of stop an overdose for people and, who
1: don't Sorry, I'm an EMT, and
2: I am an emergency medical technician. And one of the drugs that we carry on our ambulance is nasal Narcan, which reverses o- opioid addiction. Basically, if you can get it into someone quickly enough during their overdose, you can reverse the effects of the opioids. They actually wake up really quickly. It's like a really, uh, it's it's one of those cool drugs. This one works really well. Not everything works super well. Uh, this one works really well. Typically, if you get it in there uh, soon enough, basically, mm-hmm. if somebody's found. Of a suspected overdose, uh, and it's easy to use. You put it in the nose, like it's actually like this is something like available wow. yes. to people
3: that they can n- now like have on their per- like normal people, like not yeah. just EMT. They give it out like, like candy, yeah. yeah it's, you, it's... you can like carry like carry this. Like a lot of people have been, you know because of the increase in fentanyl that's been, uh, especially in like New York, Um, there is a lot higher uh, 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 prevalence of fentanyl in cocaine and Xanax and other like random prescription drugs that are fake and not real. And uh, and fentanyl dosage, like the fatal fentanyl dosage is tiny.
2: It is like minuscule.
3: And so a lot of people are you know, promoting, uh, uh, carrying uh, yeah, as, it's, as you know, it is a lifesaver, yeah. but
2: it obviously is, uh, it's going to be a lifesaver of one overdose. It's not going to yeah. save a person from being addicted to, yeah. to this drug. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the typical, I guess just to say a very, very common narrative, mm-hmm. uh, which goes completely against what these, you know, vultures are trying to say, Uh, about oh addicts are reckless criminals or whatever is somebody who took this drug given to them by their doctor by their legitimate md uh who was in turn told this is a safe drug that we've tested it's gone through you know every round of testing Mm -hmm. and it's it's safe to use it's safe to use for this dosing we can talk we don't have to talk about the specifics but a lot of what happened here had to do with the dosing with Mm -hmm. with how it's dosed and how dangerous it is at particular doses um But but yeah, so somebody uh, what happens a lot again, and I have seen this in my own family, I've seen this happen. Somebody took their prescription drugs for their pain. They had surgery. They had whatever. They get addicted to opioids their doctor cuts them off at some point because, yeah, at one point it kind of came out like, oh, yeah, this stuff is not safe at all. It's Mm -hmm. dosed weirdly. It has a lot of different effects on different people, even even for every drug, obviously, is a little bit different on on every human being. But Mm -hmm. this is wildly like the dosing is wildly sort of out of sync for what people actually need Mm -hmm. uh, for this one. And then they, they turn to, you know, to opioids on the street because they can't do anything else they can't get any other sort of prescriptions from a doctor so it becomes this you know the the sort of typical thing of like a person who has all sorts of other things going on in their Mm -hmm. life who is not sort of what people would have stereotypically associated with drug use or recreational drug use now becomes sort of uh you know an opioid addict because of this like how widespread this was you know
1: and this stuff like is sort of raised in these articles. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. things that the that is revealed in this court filing is that you see an awful lot of uh, Purdue executives, and particularly, again, uh, Richard Sackler, pushing to keep increasing the sales force and the overall sales of OxyContin. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, you've you've got him. There's just unreal quotes like when the drug was approved in 1995. Uh, you've got Sackler uh, quoted as saying the launch of OxyContin tablets will be followed by a blizzard of prescriptions that will bury the competition. Oh the God. prescription blizzard will be so deep, dense, and white. Um, oh the other the other part Oxy, of this
3: oxycodone is a white pill. It is. <laughs> yeah. Uh
1: the the other part of this is that. Their pharma reps were out there telling doctors that OxyContin uh, carried less addiction risk than typical. Because doctors know how dangerous uh, opiates are. They've known this for, for ages. We went through all of this decades ago. Uh, but when OxyContin hit, you had Purdue reps going out there telling doctors that the drug was less abusable, uh, less addictive than, say, heroin or morphine had been, uh, and this is where you start. This is this is where things start really getting even more upsetting yeah. when the FDA approved OxyContin in 1995. The FDA also has to sign off on the claims you make in marketing a drug. They allowed Purdue to claim that the opioid was believed to reduce the addictiveness of the pills. Uh, The research, I guess, was not in on that point. So, uh, sure, they were allowed to sort of put that marketing line in. And then you had Purdue basically saying, like, lead the sales pitch with that. Uh, And so they began really pushing hard to market the pill on the back of it being less addictive. Um, and the numbers of, uh, you know, the sales force that they began to recruit for, for Purdue pharma were, were pretty staggering too. Um, between 2007, and 2016 uh, Purdue went from having 300 pharma reps to uh, 700 um, reps out there pushing, pushing their products. But the other the other part of this that's, that's again kind of uh astonishing is this lawsuit is all happening today um but Purdue already pleaded guilty to federal charges in 2007 uh they paid a for then a i think it was kind of a record fine of uh 634.5 million dollars in fines and uh, several executives uh, pleaded to federal misdemeanors uh, stemming from this from this previous court case. Uh, but a thing to bear in mind is that, according to a New York article about the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma, OxyContin netted them like thirty-five billion dollars. Yup, that's so like fucking that weird. fine, which federal prosecutors were like, "Yeah, we got them. We we did it." You were you were this is back in two thousand seven. We you know we we punished them for um, misrepresenting the drug's risk. Man, that is an easy cost of doing business to write off, like thirty-five billion versus six hundred. Who gives a shit? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's and then things kept getting worse. Like part of the deal, and this is why this lawsuit is happening. Part of the deal was that Purdue had to meet certain co- compliance criteria as part of that settlement. Uh, one of which is, as I understand, they they needed to scale, like scale down their marketing operation and make sure they stopped misrepresenting the drugs' risk. And instead of that happening, uh, Purdue kind of stepped on the gas in terms of selling the drugs and pushing pharma reps to adopt really aggressive sales tactics uh, to to market OxyContin. And uh, mm-hmm. just a thing to note is the U.S. attorney who oversaw the 2007 settlement, John Brownlee, um, he's no longer a U.S. attorney. He works at a big law firm, Holland and Knight. And he heads a department there but one of the things that the firm does uh, is they lobby Congress on drug policy. They mm. also represent drug manufacturers. Uh, there's, <laughs> uh, I believe right now they are representing a company called Insys who make opioids. Uh, and they are being defended in that case by a former uh, federal prosecutor. And so... <sighs> <laughs> our adversarial legal system... Uh, seems to produce a lot of government attorneys who, if they're working for the people, it's a temporary gig.
2: Mm. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's, this stuff is really, really, really stunning. It also, I, I think it does have to come with uh, some sort of... Ah, some sort of other like the other end of this of what how it just what a tremendous tragedy it is 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 sort of how it has moved our society in certain ways like there are there are this epidemic is specifically linked with a massive amount of uh sort of orphans with little kids who both parents have died of overdoses with like entire entire counties uh in the south and the midwest and in several regions of the u.s where like orphanages are packed to the gills with little kids who like just lost both of their parents Mm -hmm. or they lost so much of their family so many people have died because of this and because of these direct actions that it's just absolutely yeah like if you want to get really 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 angry or really jaded and and have no hope for humanity read these
3: pieces (laughs) right well i just yeah (laughs) yeah i mean it's like it's just so it's so fucking like system like it is just it is a system it is like it it's like a fully like self-supporting system and and in 2011 they started selling uh what was it called again um butrans bupropenophrine which is a like Opioid reversal Antagonist yeah. yeah where is it Okay yeah It can treat pain As well as addiction To narcotic pain relievers Which is just <laughs> Of course You know Like what the f- Like
1: We're gonna help yeah. you quit
3: Just oh, We just God. want the best
1: for you And God. the You know The the other parts of this um, So if, if you Another place that did some great uh, Reporting on this Is the Charleston Gazette uh, mail in West Virginia. Uh, they did a great series of reports about how this all unfolded in West Virginia. Uh, and the numbers of pills being shipped into West Virginia are astonishing given the population of that state. And there were two DEA agents assigned to the entire state. And one of the things they're supposed to monitor is doctor's offices that prescribe a suspicious number of, of uh, op- opioids. Pill and factories, yeah. They just, they didn't pursue it. Uh, they didn't really keep track of that. And as a result, West Virginia got hammered by the uh, opioid epidemic. Now, there's things left out of the story in the, in this telling, and uh, I can't really give them their due here. This absolutely has an element of, there's there's a point where prescription Uh, drug abuse begins to intersect with the importation of uh, heroin, particularly uh, from cartels in Mexico. That is also a major part of the story and a major driver of this. Um, And that's just not something that these two articles are really going to tackle. I've just started reading a really good book called dreamland uh, that is about that sort of interaction between uh, legal prescription opioids and black tar heroin, uh, and that's seems like it's going to be a hell of a a, a hell of a great uh, book on the subject. The other mm-hmm. thing that doesn't really get us doing these articles is, um, it's very easy to generalize about pill mills and yeah. shitty doctors just writing reckless prescriptions for OxyContin. Um There are a lot of people with chronic pain and like genuine like injuries that can't really be, can't really be fixed or mitigated, just lived with, uh, for a lot of folks like that, opioids did provide badly needed relief. There are people who need serious pain medication. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in the reaction to this and Danielle, you alluded to it uh, a lot of overdose cases being people, who were sort of cut off from the pills by their doctor after developing a dependency on it. Uh, That's, that's another dimension of this is Mm -hmm. as the, as the country, as government agencies have tried to sort of push the toothpaste back in the tube, (laughs) um, the people they've sort of caught in the crossfire are people who have legitimate need for these medications Absolutely. And the converse, neither the conversation nor the policy really recognizes their legitimate interests or needs, and mm-hmm. so they're getting screwed in this as well. Because at this point, we're well past the point where monitor like we're monitoring people who are prescribing um, opioids can make a huge difference. That's we're, we're kind of that's that that the horses have bolted. Uh, from that particular that particular barn mm-hmm. um but our policy is still acting as if people getting oxy oxycodone prescriptions is the problem
2: yeah it's 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 unreal uh it, it <laughs> opioids are absolutely a, necess- a necessary part of palliative care they're a necessary part of so many things and they are also Treated like a band-aid for working class folks. This is a, another element of this of how hard working class folks have been hit by this. People who, you know, work with their hands, people who work construction, <laughs> people who work any given job and get hurt and have no job security and and not necessarily any decent health insurance. And, you know, the best they can possibly do is, is get some painkillers. Maybe they can't afford the surgery that'll that'll fix something. Maybe they can't get something else. So that is compounded it so much i mean this is something that has affected people from any any class any imaginable class however as usual the people who are the worst off get it the worst with, with anything like this and it is it's been atrocious uh, for folks in that situation so that is another there was yep. a piece this doesn't go directly into that super super far but the piece on the uh the sort of i'm so sorry i can't remember the name of the article i can like find it and put it in the show notes but the uh the great exposé by the the woman who's a like a lesbian cable guy goes into oh, this a little yes. bit about like how many of us like have to take painkillers just to get through the day or have to do certain things just to get through the day because we're on our feet all day because we're yeah, we're falling off of ladders and 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 things like this are happening but yeah that that's another piece that like goes into how blue collar workers are absolutely like even more disproportionately affected by this this sort of really malicious practice
3: Oh, God, I can't remember what the name is. I will definitely find it. Oh, here it is. It. I think it is. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's called um, I Was a Cable Guy, I Saw the Worst of America um, yeah. from the Huffington Post written by Lauren Hugh.
2: Yeah, Lauren Hugh. Yeah. Um, she goes into it a little bit.
3: Yeah, um, she talks yeah. about it. Uh, uh, she talks about her experience as a cable um, service person, cable technician, and also, yeah, talks about the uh here's actually the quote um that's the thing here's one little piece that's the thing they don't tell you about opiate addiction people are in pain because unless you went to college the only way you'll earn a decent living is by breaking your body or risking your life plumbers electricians steam fitters welders mechanics cable guys linemen fishermen garbage men the options are endless (laughs) um And, and vets too if we and yeah, add that sort of, yeah, in, the, of course. in the end there but yeah there's there's uh yeah so uh she she this is uh this is a great article that uh goes yep. into like a, a more personal profile of of being uh not not uh personally um affect or uh, affected by opiate addiction not like personally having an addiction to opiates but um being in you know the realm or being in the uh the job class of of seeing friends
2: seeing a lot of suffer it, yeah. from
3: that um yeah.
1: but yeah it, it's um it's an upsetting topic to look at because it's one of those as is the case of so many crises we are facing right now it was it's one that was eminently foreseeable uh mm-hmm. it's one that largely happened out in the open uh, mm-hmm. and with intent and the not even
3: like foreseeable but like planned yep. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> practically right
1: yeah i um, mean
3: according to like the, the 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 documents found in these two articles that you know yeah
1: yeah yeah it was um it, it was a great marketing opportunity uh and they <laughs> seized it with both hands and it's one of those things where it's not just one you know evil company doing this stuff they their accomplices are you know at every level of government uh people just cutting them a break uh regulatory agencies just making a concession saying i'll allow it on something that really shouldn't be allowed Uh, and it's just a painful thing to go researching and looking into uh because until like it's one of those things that until you really look at it you don't realize how much of this, the shit didn't just happen. Right. Mm-hmm. I think there's this narrative of, Oh, you know, the economic crisis, uh, and in those left behind regions of America, uh, people don't have anything. So they just, they, they turn to, uh, you know, oxy and, and heroin. And it's like, no, that's, no, nope. th- that's, that's bullshit. Right. That's, that's one of those vague hand wavy, uh, rationalizations that blames a crisis that can be that should be put at the feet of actual bad actors and says it was just the it was just the zeitgeist uh the zeitgeist was heroin so uh yeah so anyway good read it's well it's well worth looking into um and it's eye-opening to see how pharma executives uh speak when they think that These materials will never be subpoenaed. Uh, So go go and give those a look, and there will be lots of show notes on this one uh, and supplemental materials in the post on the website. Uh, That will do it for our show today. Our thanks to Two Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Danielle, where can people find you?
2: At Danielle Ri, Natalie, at Natalie Watson,
1: All right. and that'll do it for this week's waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Be sure to rate and review us if your podcast uh, on your podcast platform of choice, uh, if they allow such a thing. I think we're a five star cast, but it's not for me to say.
0: Uh, we'll be
1: back again with Waypoint Radio on Friday, and you should also be sure and listen to our new podcast, "Be Good," and rewatch it, where we just revisited Unbreakable, and now we're taking a look at Split, as we consider the unlikely arc of M Night Shyamalan's superhero trilogy. And boy, which is has in that a new a ride. feed,
3: yeah, seriously, <laughs> um, and it's in a new feed, so find it, check it out.
1: yeah we're not putting those in the main feed anymore so if you want to hear us uh talk about major major movies popular movies movies we just want to talk about uh go look up be good and rewatch it we hope you'll join us for that we hope you'll join us again but until then do not give in to astonishment
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: Sorry, I don't know. Can I just say something really quick? Why don't people fucking look at the sign that says the room is being used? Why are people just fucking barging in? Okay, Yeah, sorry. what the
1: fuck was that?
2: I just, the, I just
3: the, Someone
1: just—they just walked into man. a fucking.
2: It was the hammer man. Hammer man? Yeah,
3: from earlier. Remember, I was like, "There's a man with a hammer." Ah, uh, there's oh. a
1: man with a hammer. Right, anyway, be careful what you say then.